0: Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now let's buckle up and write. Have you ever wondered, can I take the research from my graduate studies and turn it into a book? Sure, it can be done. Kristen Keffler, author of The Myth of the Silver Spoon, did it. She took her graduate school research and turned it into a book, but only after learning that to write a book demands so much more than writing a dissertation. You have to package it in a readable way. After all, people are paying $19.95 or more for your book. In today's interview, which by the way, Dave is driving, Kristen shares her book writing journey and offers advice about finding a developmental editor, developing your voice, persisting with your book pitch, and building a platform before your book is published. We say it every time, folks. This is a long interview and some of the highlights are toward the end, so be sure to stick around. You'll be encouraged by Kristen's story if you too are on the book writing journey.
1: Kristen, welcome to our writing podcast. We are so excited to have you here today.
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you both for, for having me.
1: Christian, you mentioned that you've written and published two books within the last 18 months. Perhaps we could begin with your telling our audience a little, about, a little bit about who you are and the work that you do in Family Wealth Advising as the founder of Illumination 360.
2: So the short story is I'm a, I'm a consultant who's been working in the space of family wealth and family enterprise advising for 20 years now, almost 20 years, which is mind blowing to me. And, and really the, the work that I, that I do has been an outgrowth of my own life's journey. So my dad is a wealth creator. The last company that he started. He took public. He started when I was getting ready to go to college. He took public by the time I was, I was getting ready to graduate from college and then sold it. And so we had these series of wealth events in my own family story that were happening right at a time when I was coming out into the world and figuring out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And and it was my 20s, those couple of elements of our my family's own wealth story impacted my 20s in a way that I could only really understand in retrospect and ultimately the work that I do today with families was an outgrowth of me just trying to figure out like how do I be me and have my own voice and my own path and be proud of my dad and be proud of being part of my family and and, and learn what I need to learn about like there's all this language and all this all these ideas and concepts that when you want to understand trust and estates and joint ownership and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot to learn. So there's this outer learning. And then for me, there and I for every rising John i I've ever worked with, there's an inner journey of like, how do I find me in the midst of all of this bigness? So ultimately, that led me to the work I do with families, which is all in the space of human capital. So it's all about the growth and development of the people within a family, a family system that either is, has had liquidity, so they're, they have family wealth, or a family enterprise system. And now today, I, I have the joy of getting to work with these significant families. I have a, a private practice that I've had for 20 years. And then in the last 18 months, I've also taken on the role of a chief learning officer for multifamily office. So for the first time, I'm getting the opportunity to really think about the scalability of these ideas, which is very fun.
1: Talk a little bit about the research that you conducted for the book.
2: The core of the book or a a core element, I won't say it's the core because I actually ended up, I thought it was gonna be the core of the book. And what I found was that I really needed to build a lot more story and a lot more experience not just have the book be based on the research because nobody wants to just read a research book, but I thought the research was fascinating. And so I wanted, that's what I wanted to write about. And I needed to weave that into a much bigger story so that readers could want to, would want to come along for the ride. And, and so the research itself, I, when I, when I was in my mid forties, so like 2017, was the year I, I went back and got another master's degree in applied positive psychology. The University of Pennsylvania is the school that has the original positive psych program, and Marty Seligman and Angela Duckworth and all the people that like I just dreamed about someday getting to learn from were people at that program. So I applied, I applied and got in, and did this this year long master's in at Penn. And of course, one of the requirements of a, a graduate degree like that is is original research. And so I decided to do my research in my niche market. So I wanted to understand of the rising gen family members that I have the opportunity to interact with, or people would refer to me in this case for research subjects, were there any common character traits and skills that the the rising gen who are true exemplars, who are really like had integrated family wealth well into their lives, had an individual identity, would claim that they were thriving, whether they were actually working for money or just working to contribute to their communities didn't matter for my research. But did they have a sense of contribution and mattering? So I went about conducting that research. It's qualitative research and based on on narrative stories. So I had a, a research protocol and the the method of of data explication i used is called the phenomenological method so it's yeah. a, it's a well-known technique for for discerning sort of key points of narrative data and ultimately i did find that in the research subjects that i that i interviewed that there were common character traits and skills that they all had or the majority of them had exhibited some uh, the development of these character traits at some point in their lifetime and, and held them in their their adult life what I was able to get through the qualitative data was this sense about how parents or key key figures in their life had ensured that wealth did not become a buffer to the creation of or to the cultivation of those character traits parenting becomes more difficult when you actually have to make Decisions of yes and no based on values and not based on external circumstances. And that to me was like the, the money takeaway from all of this was that how can we be thoughtful in coaching parents to just really engage in parenting, the hard work of parenting and knowing what you're parenting for and being willing to stand by your guns, regardless of what you're financially capable of doing.
0: What advice would you give? other researchers who are turning their research into books on how to make their research readable.
2: The thing that I learned was that my academic writing style did not, could not, would not translate to a readable book. And that was actually the hardest skill or the, yeah, it was in many ways the hardest skill for me to build was like recognizing the story voice. And then and once I once I started finding that I had the 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 real chops to write a good story, and I got that feedback, I found that it was my it was the most joyful part of the writing for me. But then the other thing I would say that was a key learning was, and I still don't think I have it nailed. My my editor really helped me get this sense of like the cadence of a chapter and like when do you when do you have kind of your expert voice, like, hey, I'm going to shine a light on this so everyone can see the concept. And then I'm going to drill into a little bit of research and anchor it. But then I'm going to tell a story. So there's sort of this like in-breath and out-breath that the reader is going through so that if the, so the energy doesn't start to drag with anything that's too sort of heavy on the research or even just too long of a story.
1: So when we work with authors, we're really really big on you've got to have a clear thesis and that thesis is going to change over time. You have your thesis, your initial structure, both the thesis and the structure will change, but you can't begin without it. As you wrote the book, did your thesis change at all? Did what did, What did it move from, from what to what?
2: It absolutely did. And I think this was also part of the, for me, maybe a a single editor could have helped me move through this whole journey but it that's just not kind of how my my work unfolded the the original thesis for me was i i thought that it was like ultimately what i was creating was something that was like part memoir part research part client story but like what i what i realized in reflection was that Trying to have like trying to have a book do that many things made it so that it didn't really hit home on any of them, and it was yeah. a very soft, weak. That there was no hook. There was nothing that made you want to lean in and go like, well, "What? What is it? What is this about?" And when I brought my my book proposal to a second developmental editor that I that I started working with, one of the things that she was able to see was she said you don't have a sharp end of the spear and she's like i think she's like this is all really good stuff but we need to actually tear it down and and pretty much turn it inside out from what i had and i like ultimately what i came to was that the thesis was about really driving home the point that that thriving is an autotelic goal like all people across all economic demographics that that is a a worthy pursuit in and of itself. And that there are unique challenges to being raised in wealth that can be tripwires to that. So, how can we find a way to normalize and name that and then show a path forward, to how to move through that both as the rising gem, but also the parents and the advisors? And I will say from a writing difficulty aspect. One of the things that I took on, and I'm really glad I did, and it was harder than I thought it would be, was I I chose three audiences. I chose the Rising Gen as a primary audience, and then I chose their parents, and then I chose their advisors, which meant that there's two chapters that are written directly to parents, one chapter written directly to advisors. But throughout the book, even when I was writing a chapter for Rising Gen, I had to find ways to, to also name the other audiences and make sure that they still felt like they were part of the, the story.
1: What would be a specific example of how you did it? So would it mean that you, in the narrative, you would like tell a specific story that appealed to the advisor, even though you're maybe the, the chapter is primarily to the rising gen? How did you do that?
2: you hit on, on really what, what, what I learned was an effective way to do that. And I mean, it really, it felt to me like a sort of a 201 level skills. Like I was, I was trying to figure out how to be a good storyteller. I was trying to find that cadence and the in-breath and the out-breath, but then getting coached up on like, Hey, you haven't acknowledged the advisors in 10 pages or something like that. And so the way that that I learned to do that was two, two key things that I started doing. And one was when I knew that there needed to be a story, I would think about like, is there a perspective I could write that, that is to the right, that is about a rising gen experience, but it's from the estate planning attorneys or the trustees perspective, like their role in that. And so that way the, the attorney or the advisor reading the book could say like, oh yeah, I, I see me in that. Oh, and I can see how I might interact with a, a rising gen like that, and the rising gen can can see their version of it too. The other thing I did that was slightly easier to do, just because it, it took less words, was if I would say something like an invitation to the rising to a the reader, the rising gen, and say, and in this ne- in this next step, this will empower you, and then I might put in parentheses or the one you love or or advise to do blah, blah, blah. So I would just take and I'd be writing it to the Rising Gen, and then I'd pause real quick and, and invite the other two audiences in.
0: I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you began to become a good storyteller and what storytelling looked like given the research that you had on hand. There, there's a
2: couple of things. One is I... I think it helps that I'm super I'm a very empathetic person. So when I'm working with my clients, I am really with them and I have a I like feel like I own their story inside me as they're sharing it. So I think that what I often did when I was writing was I would I, if there was a point that I realized that there was a story I could tell, I all of the stories in the book are are real stories and some of them are compilations but most of them are just like stories from from the 20 years of doing this work and so i would put myself back in that conversation and think about like what were the details that i remembered or that i knew from that and then how could i bring those details forward and really make it live with some of them sometimes they were details about like just the felt experience that i would imagine that person was in when they their drawers were stuffed with unopened trust statements and it was like what did it feel like to be so clogged up with something you didn't know how to manage that you actually had the physical clutter in your space from that so so i think some of it was that and and getting some good coaching and and good cheerleading from my my editors along the way saying like that's it like like i My one developmental editor, when she would give me feedback, I would get the the Word document back and she would like highlight something and say, like, that's it. Like, that's the voice. If you can keep channeling that kind of language, that's your magic. And so the more I heard that, the more I could see how I could go from kind of a flat narrative writing, storytelling writing to something that was much more alive. So I learned how to do it better and better throughout the book. I think that one of the things that also was helpful was I did have a lot of research hours of research quotes to pull from. So in the book, I have both research quotes, and they are designated in a certain way in the book, so you know, like this is a direct quote. There are some stories in here that are they are based on the story that somebody told me during my research, but I actually took and and morphed it into a narrative. So I have all of their their language and the way that they spoke it. And I did the best I could to smooth that out, right? Because the, the spoken language doesn't, it, it often doesn't translate well to a really clean story, but it—but I did the best I could to sort of use the the spark moments from that. But again, like that was just this whole other unexpected skill that I had to build. And thank goodness I had good people helping me think it through.
0: You talked a little bit about the structure of your book previously, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you landed on the structure for the book. So one
2: of the things I'm trying to remember back, feels like it was like a lifetime ago, the the first iteration and what specifically was different versus how the book ended up. But what I, and I'm not like, what I know was that it was like, I sort of wrote it the wrong direction where I, it was too soft of an invitation in for the reader. I just didn't have a, a really good hook. And what I decided that I needed to do in the in the version that finally got published was early on, we sort of confronted, the, the section's actually been called Confronting the Myth of the Silver Spoon. So we dive right in to the places where I feel like people would feel the discount if they didn't, if we didn't address some of these issues, the reader could easily discount anything else that I said. So we, we talk about sort of the, the cultural relationship that we have with money and wealth. So I started with this big lens, not, not just focusing on the affluent families or enterprising families, but really starting with a big lens on like, what is our cultural relationship with money and wealth? And really identifying the the level of complexity in that relationship. And the fact that in the a society like ours that is that is governed, our economic system is capitalism. So we already have some filters for what we hold up as valuable collectively that make it difficult when you're on either side of that economic spectrum. And so what I decided to do in to try to To continue to invite the reader in was that the very first chapter I actually had stand outside the rest of the book, which is, as I learned, unusual, right? In the table of contents, chapter one comes before part one. And it's really because what I wanted to do was name a little bit of my story and then invite the reader in to think about some of the complexities of growing up with wealth. And just lay it out as kind of a thesis of, of question. And then part one really confronts the myth of that wealth solves all problems and makes your life totally easy and you should have nothing to complain about. and talks a little and talks a lot about like why why do we have a complex relationship with money and with wealth and what's the difference between money and wealth. So that's part one, and it's all about like trying to just really, Trying to bright light on anything that would say that would make the reader think, well, there's nothing here for me. But instead, to say, but actually, it's like a, the aperture around this is pretty big. Like we all have a relationship with money and wealth, so there's something interesting, maybe useful here for a broader spectrum than you might think. And then I actually move into a whole section on this idea of emotional, psychological, and emotional clutter. So again, I'm not even into the research yet. I am setting the stage for this idea that that I see four types of clutter in the the rising gen that are really common, and so I go through sort of the that central analogy of clutter. Why you know why does it show up and and then there's those four chapters have a very similar cadence and style because they're sort of work workbook like almost, and then I actually that's where I get into the part three is where I get into the research. And I talk about my research. I talk about some of the broader social science research around character development and and just the science of human thriving. And then the last part of the book is really part four is intended to be an invitation to the reader and their community that if they so choose, that this is the opportunity to really think about how to create an impactful life, how to take what you've been given and through impact work or impact giving, sort of expand that in to multiply it back out to the world. So the, the intention is to sort of create this story arc that makes it a safe place for people to come in and then identify some of the key things that might get in the way, highlight the science, and then move into an invitation to to action.
1: What's helpful to a young writer or young meaning they're early in a book project is sometimes the way we normally think about structure, we think about it as point one, point two, point three, you're trying to make points. Whereas you had this kind of meta idea taking them on a journey. You called it the story arc or the narrative arc. And and what do they need along the way to keep them reading, which is Really, really a great way to approach a book. So another question is related to as you wrote this book, was there ever like this dark moment where you thought this book is never going to happen?
2: Definitely. By fall of 2018, I was like, I'm going to just start writing an outline. I want to publish this. I want to do something with it. And by 2019, I had hired a developmental editor and I, I, I was stunned at how much time it took me to try to wrap my head around an outline. And let alone, I I started trying to populate chapters and I didn't have a good structure for myself. What I ended up learning for me was that I needed to write sequentially. I needed to write every chapter and, and put it down, at least a solid draft before I could start the next. But I didn't learn that early on. At the beginning, I was like, Ooh, that's a good story. That's a good idea. And I was sort of, I didn't have good organization for how I was going to write, what the, how I was going to use the outline. I didn't, I hadn't like plugged into that yet. And so there were times in 2019 and then 2020 when the pandemic happened and, you know, I'm juggling work and a first grader and I kept writing. I kept trying to push forward, but there were, I was just like, this is never gonna happen. And at that point, I'd sent a proposal to Wiley that I didn't even ever get a response from. And I just felt like I, I knew that I wanted to write the book, but I finally just was like, maybe this is just for me. Maybe I just need to write this to get it out there. And ultimately ended up pushing through enough and getting moving to a, an editor that just brought a fresh perspective to what I was doing and had some pretty good chops in publishing who helped me rethink about it. And so ultimately, that those dark days all were before I got the publishing contract, because once I got the publishing contract, which was in February of 22. And they gave me they gave me till May of 22 to write the book. I was so busy writing the book that there was I had a lot of crisis of confidences and that nobody's going to want to read this or I'm going to like, this is terrifying. What if people don't like what I have to say? But I never thought that I would never, I wouldn't, I wasn't going to get the book done. It was just like, I'm going to get it done. I just don't know if anybody's going to want to read it.
0: Can you tell me what happened between the first proposal and the second proposal you sent to Wiley or were they looking at the first proposal and they just finally responded? Can you tell me what you did differently the second time through to get their attention?
2: this was all just part of the learning for me about like i was so passionate about it i could see the value in the first proposal i wrote but i didn't write it in a way that that somebody else could see how compelling it would be right i think I, you just look at it at face value and it's like that's a super small market with like a real like extra niche inside the niche is the rising gen of affluent families like it needed to be a very compelling proposal in order to get their attention. And I needed to, what I learned in the first proposal, I had not really identified how big the market really is. Like if you really looked at wealth levels that are more like millionaire next door kind of wealth or a mass affluent wealth where this is still applicable. And when you look at the the people and the advisors, then their whole ecosystem like, I had to really go put pen to paper and come up with some legitimate numbers that I could say, like, this market's bigger than you think it is. And so I didn't do that. And I did a lot of other things wrong the first time around. I was pleased in that I had you tapped into my network and I asked for, I asked for some contacts. And so I had two different editors at Wiley and I sent them each in two different departments. I sent them each a proposal, one I never, ever heard back from, the other I heard back from, and I'm assuming he must have looked at the proposal and was like, I'm not wasting my time. And, and then I never heard back. And so what I, what I did was when I, when I went back to the drawing board and I had fresh eyes with the new editor, I was able to see how I hadn't really made the case. I hadn't done the work to make the case. So part of it was the structure of the book. Which, as I said, got totally inverted and, and I created this much sharper sort of hook for it. But the other piece that it took me time that I just didn't ever think to put in was really being clear about the market, writing a competitive analysis of any other book that was, that I thought might play in the same space and what I saw was similar and what I saw was different about my book. And, and I did that, that proposal literally took probably six solid months of me. I wasn't working out full time, but I'm like, in the days that I had dedicated to writing, it probably took six solid months to write the proposal. And I wrote three chapters. I wrote the intro chapter one and chapter two to send. And then I went back to one of my contacts and I said, Hey, I like, I get it. I, I've retooled this. It's fresh. I have a, a, a perspective. I, I, I did something to say like, Hey, I'm recognizing I'm coming back to you again, but this is new and worth looking at. And literally within a week, I had a response and said, we think it's worth a phone call. We set up a phone call. And by the end of a 30 minute phone call, they said, we we want to publish it. And it was, it was an awesome day.
0: I bet that's such a great feeling. So you submitted it in May of 2022. Is that correct? It submitted it for publication in May of 22. Yep. And then it was published when? Can you give a sense of the time frame? It, it was fast. On,
2: from what I've heard, it was out November 22nd, 20 of 22. So I turned it in at the end of May. And part of the reason they gave me the option, they said, if you can get it into us by May, we can get it in. We can get it printed before Thanksgiving, which I was, I thought that would be a good thing for holiday presents. Or it was like, get it in in November and then it was going to be like sometime, some smudgy time in 23, it would that they would put it in their queue. And I just felt like, strike while the iron's hot. I'm like, I'm willing to like dedicate the time and just get it written. And it was a very intense. Intensive writing time, but I'm really glad I did it that way because there was something about just being in the rhythm rather than, and I would, the way I structured it, and I don't know if this is helpful for listeners, your listeners to hear, but I, I mean, I was also juggling a full time practice in a new role as a chief learning officer. And so I found I just had to time block and that I gave myself, I think I gave myself one and a half days every week. And then I took the last week of every month. And I just put an out of office responder up, and I gave myself the last week of every month to write. And so there was like I kept it moving all month long, and then I just would focus, and I would get one to two chapters done in that that big writing block. And I'd get feedback from my editor, and I could you know so I just moved it along, and I I actually built out a spreadsheet that just mapped out what had to get done, and it really helped me to stay accountable even on the hard writing days, I was like, well, like, I don't know, go for a walk and come back because like, you're, you're going to have to get this done. And it, for me, it worked.
1: Talk a little bit about the marketing of the myth of the silver spoon. And one thing that I thought was really strong about the positioning of the name is that it it widened the audience just by the name of the book, right? And I'm sure that was very strategic by yep. Wiley or you or yep. whoever was influential on the titling of the book. So the, in a sense, back to your aperture, it, it widened the aperture on who the book was for. And maybe the one or two things that gave you the biggest lift.
2: One of the things that I wished that I had more effectively wrapped my head around was what it was what it was going to take to be ready for the book launch because I turned in the manuscript at the end of May and then I took I don't know like two, I think I I think I ultimately ended up taking about 3 weeks off cuz we went on vacation and then I got covid and so most of June was like just shot and by the time I sort of got my head back in it in July I was like, okay, I need to start priming the pump for marketing and PR. One, I was already tired. And so the idea of like digging in deep for a big PR push, a big marketing push, I just kept thinking like, oh, we have some time. We have some time. Part of the problem for me was that I don't have a distribution list. I had let that go a long time ago. If I had an active distribution list, I would have shortcut a lot of the the stuff that I ended up having to do. To just try to create enough of a community to have a launch too. So for me, there there was two arms to what I did. I did hire a PR firm that had specific focus in book PR. And the developmental editor that i I worked with also was someone who is a very talented, experienced book marketer. So I used her to help me really think about, what did I need to build out my website so that there was a place for people to go to find out more? We did a book trailer, which I didn't even know was a thing, but like a movie trailer. And so I actually had a professional videographer come in and we had the script and I did a whole afternoon of filming. The, and it turned out great, but it was it was very stressful for to like think about doing that. So there was all these pieces, all these angles that we were looking at, like how could I start priming the pump on social media and sprinkling in testimonials? And even before the book was published, just sort of these snippets that to get people interested. and then the the using the trailer to try to get people putting that on LinkedIn and driving traffic to my website. so we we used a lot of angles that that were, different kinds of media. And I'm not very social media savvy, one. And two, I don't have a list. So there's just a lot of ways that I was a little behind the eight ball that I think if someone already had that kind of community built, they could just go use those levers. And I had to build all of that. But I think that the, the other thing that I did that I, that I felt was like the big lift, my editor slash marketing guru, decided told me that she really felt like a virtual book launch would be a great idea. And I was like, I don't know, like it just it didn't feel I kept imagining being at a bookstore and doing a book launch there. And she's like, you can do that, too, but you're not going to reach the number of people that you could reach with a with a LinkedIn Live book launch. And so I did that and I, I kept marketing it in the weeks coming up to November 22nd. And I think we actually ended up doing it on like the evening of the 21st. And I got one of my friends and colleagues, Jim Grubman, who's well known in the industry to moderate it and interview me. So he and I came up with sort of cadence of of what he was going to ask me so that I could share about the book. And we ended up getting several hundred people live on that call. And one, it was, it it really helped push pre-sales, which I also learned is a an important piece of the algorithm puzzle for for Amazon. So we I was able to get just as the book came out I was able to get bestseller in its category or top 3 in its category in a couple of different on a couple of different days in different categories. So I was able to get those screenshots and and really capture that moment which was helpful. And the thing I wasn't expecting was how sweet it was to log in and see the number of faces of the people i cared about who and and people i didn't know who were logging in to to celebrate the book with me i would say i wish i would have started sooner i wish i already had a platform in place and the virtual book launch was huge as was the the book trailer i think was really helpful
0: while we're on pr just really quickly what are you doing still to this day 10 months, nine months later to promote your book? Because this is a long haul, right? To promote your book, you need to get people to pay the money and read it. So what are you still doing? I
2: intended to actually do more specific outbound marketing. But as, as you guys alluded to, I ended up in a collaborative writing project that we started in late December. So literally like five weeks after my book got published, we start I started working on this this book called Well 3.0. And so my bandwidth for outbound marketing of my book sort of diminished. But what I found was that I could it actually forced me to be really thoughtful about being targeted. One of the things that I did was every time I got I got contacted to do a speaking engagement or someone wanted me to sit on a panel or something like that. I just got bold about saying like, I would love to do that. And I would, you know, I would love it if you would buy books for all your participants. And as a result, like I have actually moved, I bet it's close to a thousand books of, of ones that like were, you know, sort of above and beyond, like just stuff that I can count from my own efforts that had, that's been really helpful it It requires thought and care and enough enthusiasm to keep to keep the buzz going.
0: How about you end this conversation by talking about your news project, your collaborative project, and what it's like collaborating versus being the singular author on a project? What are the challenges and what are the joys of doing a collaborative project? It has been
2: really interesting to me to have the two projects so closely together in terms of time. One of the things I found was that the load on a collaborative project was different and still big. So on my book, it was like a chapter was not going to get written if I didn't know when I was going to write it. But I, but in that, I also controlled the time of like, nope, I'm going to do that on Friday, or I'm willing to work on Saturday to do that. One of the things I, I didn't quite expect with the collaborative writing project is we still had a, a deadline. We wanted it out by July of this year. We started in December. and But part of the collaboration was like, in order to meet that deadline, we just had to be ready to respond whenever a piece was ready. So I worked a lot of nights and a lot of weekends that I wasn't expecting because it was like, well, my job is to give feedback on this section now, or my job is to to gather resources or data for the next section. And so like the hard part for me was not being able to to manage the timing and just to be responsive so that we could get it done. What I really loved was how much, I I really trust my collaborating writers, Jim Grubman and Dennis Jaffe. and And we like, we did not have always the same opinion. And we had this really, powerful, sometimes little a little bit edgy like with you know, like we we would each take a stand and then we would have to talk about like how do we do this so that we don't lose the the point we're trying to make but but we maybe find a softer way or a the collaboration really created, I think, a much a very strong piece. And it was tough because we do have three different perspectives and each one of us would have written the same book in a different way. But one of the things that that worked for us and never having been a part of another collaboration team, I don't know how other writers do it, but we ultimately decided that we had to have a singular voice. So Jim Grubman became our our singular voice where Dennis and I, we had a comprehensive outline that we were all adding to and that Dennis and I would come in with content blocks or ideas. And and be filling out the outline. And then Jim would take and write. And then we would, when we got the draft, we would go in and add sections or say like, I don't think we need this or right. So we had this ongoing dialogue in the draft, but Jim really took on the burden of taking all of our ideas and creating the singular voice. So I think he's more fatigued right now than we are.
1: Why don't you tell our audience exactly what is Well3.0? What's the big idea? And how do you plan to market that for the rest of this year and maybe in 2024? So
2: really at the heart of it, Wealth 3.0 is a an invitation to a paradigm shift for our collective fields of wealth advising. So whether you come through a technical doorway like trusts and estates or finance, or you're an accountant or you come through one of the more human capital focused doorways like leadership development, succession, or rising gen education, like regardless of what doorway you come through, we know that the fam- families we serve are complex and they need a, they need a complex advisory team. And what Well 3.0 is really asking for inviting is that, that it's that our field is ready to be, to truly professionalize. We have we are a discipline of disciplines so we all have our home discipline and our home code of ethics and the and the sort of client engagement rigor that that each of our home domains guides us with and we have an opportunity to to really professionalize as a collection of disciplines and in order to do that we there we need more structured education and training so we have four components that we outline in the book and it's education and training rigorous research which we don't have we do much more in the field of family enterprise but not in family wealth and then professional organization like really defining professional code of ethics and and how do we organize ourselves as a collection of professions and then at the top of our our pyramid that we've of the four components is is a practice component, which is really about how do we take the best of what social science guides us in terms of human thriving and system thriving, and how can we how can we use that and apply that to families and family enterprise. So it's really the book is a is a book for the profession for for the advisors, and. With that, it's an extension to the families because it's really about up leveling our work as advisors to really support families in a in a new way, in a purpose more purposeful, less fear-based, and much more sort of rigorous and integrated than we have historically had. So that's what the, the book is about. Marketing-wise, this has been another interesting thing because with the three of us, we're able to spread the load and we all have a pretty broad network. So we're doing a lot of we have done a couple of joint podcasts where each of us is doing individual projects where, you know, whether it's article writing or podcasts or sitting on a panel where we're highlighting the book and its content. And so for me, it has felt like a very, in many ways, it's felt much more not natural, but it's like fit into the, to the workflow in a way that my book felt like I was, it was a project at a launch. And this book feels more like we're just all connecting it to what we're already doing. And the, the sales have been very strong for the first, we're now five, six weeks in. They've been remarkably strong. And so I feel like there, there was some pent up demand because there was, we wrote some articles over the last 18 months that kind of teed that up for people. And I think people were hungry and, and ready to learn what it was about. So that helped from a marketing perspective. And now we just are taking it into to pretty much everything we do. And it's as a result, I think it's, it's got its own buzz.
1: Thank you so much, Kristen. This has been a wonderful interview, a wide ranging interview, very helpful to our audience who may want to consider writing a book or is evaluating whether or not their content is media enough for a book and then also to build a platform for their marketing before they write a book so thank you so much
2: my pleasure thank you both for having me what a what a fun conversation it is i will say that the, that writing this book people asked me last year or at the end of last year they said they said wasn't that was that so fun and my my honest reflection on that is that it actually wasn't fun it was deeply meaningful and it was hard work. And now it's really fun to get to talk about it. But I'm so grateful that I that I just rolled up my sleeves and I had great people helping me. And I love that your podcast is inspiring those who might be interested because we need really good thought leaders bringing good ideas forward. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my
1: journey. Well now it's time to turn to word of the episode or words of the episode and so I will start today Melissa. So mine is a quirky word and I heard it on a podcast the other day talking about mountain lions or cougars and they have what's called a dew claw and it's a it's a digit it's like a little not a finger but it's a claw It's on the foot of many mammals, birds, and reptiles, and cougars have this, or mountain lions have this. And I was listening to a podcast that was talking about mountain lions and wolves, and in California, there was some study done of mountain lions, and they found that half of what they were eating was domestic animals, so your cats and your dogs,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) and so... But they talked about the dew claw as kind of a way, maybe, to snag them and part of the way they catch their prey. So it's just this tiny little claw. And I can't imagine that it's that powerful, but the word dew claw, D E W C L A W, I'd never heard of the word before.
0: I haven't either. I would imagine it's kind of like barbed wire, you know, something really small but sharp that just snags you and gets hooked in you.
1: That's perfect. That's exactly what it is. That's such yeah. a great analogy. That's exactly what it is.
0: I'm from New Mexico, and we lost many cats to coyotes out in the desert.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So,
0: as part of a living in the West, I think, is that you do have that danger. Gosh. Well, my word is toothsome, which is an adjective which means temptingly tasty. And so... I've been on vacation in New Mexico and Colorado. And of course, in New Mexico, when you're in New Mexico, you eat the Mexican food or the New Mexican food. And it's so very toothsome. You cannot not eat it. I've probably eaten Mexican food seven out of the past eight days. So I love Mexican food, but I'm needing a break. But it's so toothsome, I can't resist it. There we go. That is my word toothsome, temptingly tasty.
1: The queso that you and Jerry, your husband, make is so toothsome. Thank you. (laughs) That queso you make. I hope you're doing it again this year. We are. All right. Toothsome queso. I think that's it for this episode. What a terrific time with Kristen. Two great words of the episode. And I'm Dave Getz.
0: And I'm Melissa Parks.
1: Now it's time to buckle up and write.